hello and good uh, afternoon. Uh, my name is Eric Neumeyer and I'm chairing today's event. Uh, maybe some of you uh, I have seen yesterday night uh, for Tom Friedman's uh, talk. Similar topic, again, uh, climate change. Uh, our guest speaker is Minister Penny Wong from uh, Australia. She is Australia's Minister for Climate Change and Water, which is perhaps not unique in the world, but must make her one of the few ministers with such a portfolio. And I understand she will explain in her talk a little bit about how this came about. Rumor has it that Australia's role during the Kyoto Protocol negotiations was, shall we say, not particularly constructive, some would say destructive, uh, and in the end it got something like plus 8% uh, emissions increase compared to 1990 level, which compared to other Annex 1 countries is pretty generous, say like this. Um, it then famously didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol and it joined President Bush's well, sort of uh, fake uh, alternative to the Kyoto Protocol. All of this, of course, changed <laughs> when a new government uh, was elected uh, not uh, long ago, which uh, you know brought uh, Minister Wong uh, into the um, into onto the government uh, uh, table. We will see. Uh, she will explain uh, what that means uh, for Australia, the measures that Australia wants to undertake to uh, um, honor its Kyoto Protocol uh, commitments. It depends a little bit on what you uh, look at. If you just look at emissions, Australia is far away even from the 8% uh, target. But I understand if you do some uh, more or less creative land use accounting. It's not all that far away. Uh, we shall hear uh, in much more detail from our guest speaker. Please uh, welcome Minister Wong. Well, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> so I feel the need now to defend my nation but I won't do so just yet. Uh, it is a, a great pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for, for coming to listen to what is, I think, the third this week, isn't it? A lecture on climate change at the LSE, uh, clearly indicating uh, how important an issue this is uh, to so many people uh, here, but also, of course, globally. Uh, I'm very grateful to the LSE for inviting me to speak. Uh, and it is a, a particular pleasure to speak here given the significant role that uh, you have played in the international climate debate over recent years. Well, when the uh, Grantham Institute was announced, uh, Lord Stern commented that it is crucial for social scientists to take a lead uh, when building the response, the policy response to climate change. Certainly, scientific understanding as to the causes and consequences of climate change has in recent years received much attention and consideration. And this focus on science was undoubtedly overdue, and we will need to ensure that our scientific understanding continues to improve and to deepen. However, it is the building of our policy response that should now be the focus of our attention. Because, to be frank, this is where the greatest shortfall lies between what must be done and what we are all doing. So tonight I want to offer to you some general observations on the global response to climate change uh, and also through focusing on the Australian policy response, 
since the new Australian government took office in December of last year. But first I want you to consider what it is we are trying to achieve in the context of the international negotiations. We are working to build an economic, environmental and social policy response by all the nations of the world. And we are doing this because climate change has the capacity to threaten our economies, our communities and our way of life. And we have to build this response across 20, 200, almost 200, disparate nations, amongst which there are markedly different societies, political systems, cultures, legal regimes and economic circumstances. And these countries vary widely in their understanding of capacity and preparedness to act in response to climate change. And those of you who know the challenges in building a coherent climate change policy response within one country can appreciate the scale of the challenge that lies before us globally. And the current global negotiations on climate change come after the collapse of the Doha trade talks in July, where the world failed to reach agreement on a trade deal. And this experience underscores just how difficult it can be to achieve international agreement. Adding to the complexity is the global context in which the climate change policy debate must now take shape. The climate change debate has understandably been overshadowed in recent weeks by volatility on global financial markets and the possible fault flow on effects of this financial crisis to national economies around the world. As you know, developments have been dramatic. More than 25 financial institutions around the world have either collapsed or been bailed out. Borrowing costs have risen globally and the financial crisis has co contributed to a serious global slowdown which has seen output in five of the world's seven largest developed economies either contract or go flat in the three months to June this year. So these events have given rise to speculation in some quarters that now may not be the best time to try and conclude an international agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Some have said that if the world cannot agree on trade, then it has no hope of agreeing on climate change. And still others assert that recent global financial and economic events demand delay in action on climate change. That we cannot afford to reduce emissions right now, or in Australia's case, proceed to introduce a market-based emissions trading scheme. Well, the Australian Government's view is that the risks of delaying remain greater than the risks of acting on climate change. And it is precisely because of concern about our future economic prosperity that we must address climate change now. There will never be an easy time to make the transition to a low carbon economy. But we know the longer we delay, the higher the costs. And delay inhibits our capacity to grasp the substantial opportunities that will come from making this transition. Early action will allow Australia and other countries of the world to make an orderly and gradual adjustment to a low carbon economy. Delaying action so that the economy is forced to catch up later to the environmental imperative will only deliver it a sharper shock down the track. And acting now will also provide the certainty to business in an otherwise uncertain climate. In Australia, business is expecting the introduction of a domestic carbon price in 2010. And despite the current financial crisis, Australian industry peak bodies have emphasised their desire for certainty and further delays will only add to business uncertainty with negative consequences for investment 
and business planning. So turning now briefly to the Australian government's perspective and what's occurred since, uh, just before the election and since the election. Well, first, in 2007, uh, the now Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who was then the leader of the opposition, uh, commissioned Professor Ross Garneau, who is one of Australia's most respected economists, to undertake a comprehensive analysis of the impacts of climate change on Australia's economy. And the review took a year to complete, and the final report was released last month. The significance of Professor Garneau's work is profound. We are the first in the world to quantify the costs of climate change for our country, just as Lord Stern did for the world. And central to Professor Garneau's finding is one stark reality. Australia, as a hot and dry continent, has more to lose than any other developed nation if we fail to take global action on climate change. The Rudd government was elected in November last year with a commitment both to ratify the Kyoto Protocol and to implement a market-based approach to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And I might pause for a while just to uh, speak with you about uh, some of the institutional changes the Prime Minister implemented. Uh, the first thing we did was uh, to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. In fact, it was the first official act of the new Australian Government. Uh, the second uh, significant um, decision made by the Prime Minister uh, was to establish uh, a portfolio of climate change, a Department of Climate Change, uh, and uh, a Minister of Climate Change at Cabinet level. Uh, and this, this department pulled together uh, individuals and functions which were previously undertaken variously by Treasury, by Prime Minister and Cabinet, by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Department of the Environment. And essentially this department uh, has uh, key responsibility for a whole of government response on climate change. It has direct responsibility for our negotiations in the international context on the international agreement and domestic responsibility across a range of climate change policy responses, the core of which is the introduction and design of the emissions trading scheme. So the logic of having a department and minister of climate change is to locate within one place, uh, in fact within the prime minister's portfolio to give its central agency uh, weight, uh, a department which is responsible for this whole of government response. Uh, very early in uh, my term as Minister for Climate Change, I set out Australia's policy framework, which is very simply based on three pillars. First, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Second, adapting to the climate change we cannot avoid. And third, uh, thirdly, to help shape a global response, a global response which is both, both effective and fair. And this overarching framework is broadly similar to the approach being taken here in the UK and, of course, in other nations. In Australia, our approach is strongly grounded in market-based reform rather than in a regulatory response. And we've chosen a market-based approach because we believe the core of an effective response to climate change is to resolve what Lord Stern described as the greatest market failure the world has ever seen. That is, to ensure that at least a portion of the costs of climate change are reflected in our economic transactions, that our investment production and consumption decisions are influenced by a carbon price. So the primary mechanism that the government has focused on is the introduction of our emissions trading scheme, which we have entitled the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme. This is Australia's principal market-based mechanism for tackling climate change. And under this scheme, we propose to introduce a cap-and-trade emissions trading scheme in 2010. 
it is central, this scheme is central to the government's economic reform agenda. And key design elements of this scheme have been set out in a green paper which I released in July of this year. Through the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, our aim is to develop an emissions trading scheme which is best practice. The size of the challenge and its importance for Australia's own circumstances mean that we cannot aim for anything less. By best practice, we mean a scheme that is efficient, cost-effective, that makes the lowest cost transition for our economy. So we are seeking to establish a scheme which has a core integrity while dealing with a range of legitimate policy concerns and sectoral impacts. And can I say in this task we are indebted to the EU's groundbreaking experience and to the frankness that the European Commission has shown in talking uh, to us and to other governments about the lessons learnt, both in terms of what has worked well and what could be, do could be done differently armed with the benefit of hindsight. The Green Paper proposes a scheme which covers the majority of Australia's emissions across sectors including stationary energy, transport, fugitive emissions, industrial processes and waste. And this approach reflects the economic reality that the wider the coverage, uh, the lower the cost. Wide coverage allows businesses to find the lowest cost opportunities to reduce emissions. And the International Emissions Trading Association and many domestic commentators have supported this approach to coverage. We are also proposing to auction the majority of permits from the start of the scheme. And subject to a comprehensive and effective international agreement, which removes the need to provide transitional assistance, we propose to move over time to full auctioning of permits. And we are taking this approach because we know that auctioning permits promotes allocative efficiency, meaning that permits will be bought by those who value them most. Auctioning also provides resources to deal with sectors that are most affected by a carbon price, including, importantly, households, uh, who, which are all often overlooked in these policy debates. Another notable feature of the Australian model is our intention to target free permit allocation and industry assistance to meet identified policy concerns. For us, the need for such a disciplined approach is a key lesson from the European EU ETS. There, as you would know, free permit allocation allowed windfall gains, while the allocation methodology sent mixed signals to change behaviour in response to the carbon price. Instead, Australia proposes to target free allocation of permits to specifically address some of the competitiveness impacts of the scheme in order to reduce the likelihood of carbon leakage. Hence, we propose to allocate permits to activities where these risks are likely to be the greatest. That is, the most emissions intensive of our trade-exposed industries. Our approach to domestic industry is similarly balanced. For example, we have identified risks from the scheme of loss of value for our coal-fired power generators and the possible consequences for Australia's investment environment. We propose to provide limited direct assistance to these facilities to ameliorate the risk of adversely affecting the investment environment rather than providing an allocation on the basis of past or future emissions. In all cases, we are acutely aware that the legitimate policy concerns of assisted industries must be balanced with the needs of households and other affected industry sectors. 
The Australian Government views the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme as the central means of reducing Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. However, we also recognise that there are a range of critical complementary policies that need to operate alongside emissions trading. The Government's drive for energy efficiency and a future national energy efficiency strategy forms a key plank of our approach uh, to reducing emissions along with our commitment to research and development into new low emission technologies. But as I said, we see emissions trading as a central means of reducing our emissions, and we are not attracted to an approach that seeks to introduce complementary policies as a substitute for a broad market-based approach. Instead, our view is that an economy-wide carbon price is critical to designing least-cost complementary policy approaches. I now want to outline some of the opportunities which we believe tackling climate change provides for Australia. Aside from the obvious need to make up lost ground in Australia's response to climate change, which Eric has so colourfully outlined, there is a deeper logic driving our ambition to have the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme up and running in 2010. And it is a logic built on the Australian Government's recognition that there will be a global carbon constraint at some point in the future. So anyone who accepts this fundamental premise must also accept that the economically responsible course of action is to prepare for this global carbon constraint. It is to put in place the reforms that enable the domestic economy to respond and to capitalise on evolving opportunities. Because it will be those countries that have moved to implement climate change reforms that will be best placed to deal with the global carbon constraint. Further, it will be the nations that have put in place solid market-based reforms to tackle climate change that can benefit most from the economic opportunities presented by global efforts to reduce emissions. The Australian Government has set a target of reducing greenhouse gas emissions to 60% of 2000 levels by 2050. And we already know that to meet our target, carbon emissions per dollar of real GDP will need to decline much faster than any improvements we have seen in recent decades. <coughs> Excuse me, I've caught a UK cold. <coughs> Some things do not change. <coughs> so, <coughs> at its core, our climate change economic reform agenda <coughs> is about re reducing our carbon intensity whilst maintaining strong economic growth. And this is what some commentators have come to refer to as improving our carbon productivity. <coughs> Australia's geography, geology and economy present both challenges and significant advantages in the transition to a low carbon world. We believe our scheme <coughs> will give Australian companies the incentive to find new <coughs> and innovative ways to reduce their emissions, which in turn will lead to the development and expansion of lower emissions technology. A recent article from Energy Policy Journal predicts that a global carbon market could grow to reach a value of 10 trillion US dollars, comparable to the size of the oil industry. And such a market would drive large-scale investment in renewables and low emissions technology. The International <coughs> Energy Agency has estimated that halving global emissions by mid-century will require investment worth 45 trillion US dollars. And further, the Australian Garneau Climate Change Review 
found that the incentive to mitigate will result in the expansion of industries where Australia can develop a comparative advantage. Such industries include electricity generation from our abundant resources in geothermal, wave and other renewables, through to our national potential for biosequestration. Australia also has vast renewable energy sources from the sun and the wind. For example, a report from Invest Australia highlights that solar radiation is, as you would probably intuitively imagine, Australia's largest potential energy source, and that over 9% of Australia's land service surface receives in excess of 1,950 kilowatt hours per square metre of sunshine each year. <coughs> Our scientists are amongst the best in the world. We have the potential to become world leaders in clean technology, clean energy technology. With energy demand soaring and abatement efforts gearing up around the world, the benefits to us could be substantial. In addition, the Garneau Review suggests that the incentive to mitigate will, over the long term, <coughs> contribute to expanded agricultural production and stimulate new technologies and better land management practices. These incentives to mitigate in the agricultural sector, one of our largest exporters and employers, could build on Australia's role as a leader in the development of environmentally sustainable agricultural practices. Environmentally profitable alternatives are increasingly being developed as economies increase their abatement efforts. And those alternatives include biomass production for renewable energy and biogas production from methane. So as I've outlined, the scheme we are proposing will have maximum coverage and features that allow it to link with other trading schemes as the global market matures. And the scheme will create a new type of financial commodity in Australia, which over, over time will become a global commodity traded on world markets. We believe Australia can play a key role in this global development. We are well placed to provide the necessary services to support developing carbon markets in the Asia-Pacific region. We are a regional commercial centre with world-class financial institutions, developed capital markets, a skilled workforce, high standards of corporate financial and regulatory governance, as well as political stability. And the potential value of such a hub in Australia could have significant benefits for our economy. The World Bank recently reported that current carbon markets around the world were worth a total of 64 billion US dollars in 2007. And this market has more than doubled in just one year from 31 billion US dollars in 2006. And in addition, the volume of carbon traded has almost doubled from about 1,700 plus megatons of CO2 equivalent in 06 to just under 3,000 megatons in 07. The Australian Government takes the view that we stand to benefit from the significant economic opportunities that, that will be there as the world acts to address climate change and swift action on our part to capitalise on increasing low emissions energy demand and providing the necessary services to support a global carbon market could be a tremendous boost to our economy. I want to turn now to an issue to, back to the um, international negotiations and the importance of shaping a global solution. We understand this in Australia. As I said, uh, the Garneau report very starkly demonstrated how, we, how vulnerable we are uh, amongst developed nations. Australia needs a global solution to climate change because, put very simply, we know we will be one of the hardest hit developed nations. 
And as I've outlined, we have taken a robust and market-based approach to reducing our domestic emissions because we want Australia to be in a position to capitalise on new opportunities in a carbon-constrained world. Nevertheless, it is not uncommon still to hear some in Australia argue that there is no point in reducing our emissions because we contribute only 1.5% of total global emissions. Let me be clear, this is not the view of our government. Although responsible for only 1.5% of global carbon emissions, we, Australia, have relatively high per capita emissions. And our domestic effort to take responsibility for our own carbon emissions through our emissions trading scheme is central to our willingness and commitment to the global effort. We understand that we cannot seek to play a valued role in international negotiations if we do not take action at home. We need to play our part. The complex challenge we all face as negotiators from across the globe will be to ground what the science is telling us in the realities of the global political economy. I spoke earlier about the importance of continuing our, e our efforts to take action on climate change in the face of the global financial crisis and other present-day challenges that could be used as an excuse to give up. But it is equally important in moving forward on a global deal that we take account of national circumstances and the political economy of countries seeking to transition to a low carbon future. This is not an excuse for inaction, either from developed or developing countries, all of whom can point to varying, de to varying degrees to national circumstances which affect each country's efforts to reduce emissions. Rather, it is an acknowledgement <coughs> that any global deal will only achieve its purpose if it is implemented. We must realise that the climate change cause will suffer more damage than good if an agreement goes unratified or fails to be turned into action in key countries. This means we need to build a global agreement that is informed by the science and which is also politically and economically sustainable in each of the countries responsible for implementing it. There have been dramatic shifts in scientific knowledge and in the economic circumstances of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and to the Kyoto Protocol since they were negotiated in the 90s. Many of the principles on which these instruments were based are, in the face of current evidence, open to question. The distinction drawn between developed and developing nations is an example. It remains the case, and re it remains true, that developed countries are responsible for most of the climate change that is now in train. However, developing country emissions are now driving global trends. Assuming a no-mitigation scenario, the Gano Climate Change Review found that developing countries as a group will account for about 90% of emissions growth over the next two decades and beyond. So these facts lead inexorably to the view that a sustainable global solution will require action and binding commitments by all major emitters, both developed and developing. On the equity principle, we would expect developed countries to take the lead, setting economy-wide emissions targets. We would expect developing countries to make specific commitments to action designed to generate a substantial deviation from business as usual. And as we agreed in Bali, these commitments should be measurable, verifiable and reportable. And it is also worth bearing in mind that the developing country group is now far less homogenous 
than it was when the Kyoto Protocol and the Convention uh, were developed in the 1990s. There is now much greater diversity in terms of economic capability and development, population profiles, per capita emission reduction efforts, exposure to climate change impacts, as well as adaptive capacity. It is very important that we consider capacity and national circumstances in determining if commitments are equitable. And of course, any viable global solution to climate change must support the aspirations of developing nations to continue to raise their standards of living while finding less carbon intensive pathways to development. The key to this will be decoupling growth in emissions from increasing prosperity. And we need to work with developing countries to ensure less carbon intensive growth in ways which should include investment in technology and other support. I want to talk briefly about the role of the private sector. And I cited earlier the International Energy Agency's estimate of $45 trillion of investment being required uh, in order to fund the transition by mid-century to, to halve global emissions. And if you consider the scale of this sort of financial, these sorts of financial transfers, it is clear that what is required means that public sector finance, will, whilst important, will simply not be sufficient to achieve this transformation particularly in developing countries. So we will need the involvement of carbon markets and private investment to help bridge this gap. The finance sector has an enormous role to play in channeling funds to the industries that will thrive in a carbon-constrained world. For financial markets and business, the better they understand the shape of what is to come, the more effective they will be in seizing the opportunities offered by the transition to a low-carbon economy. The development of international carbon markets will help drive investment in the areas where the largest cuts in emissions can be achieved most quickly and at the lowest cost. So in designing the post-2012 framework, ministers and government negotiators need to consider private sector views on what kinds of mechanisms will best unleash the necessary capital flows. Now clearly these opportunities for private sector financing are in addition to but not a sub substitute for government financing. Governments will still need to play a role where markets cannot. And our government remains active in promoting and financing mitigation technologies and activities. And our support of carbon capture and storage technology is a clear example of where it is appropriate for the government to provide assistance to overcome market barriers and to support a public good. In September of this year, Prime Minister Rudd announced the launch of, a on, of an Australian Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute. Amongst, uh, uh, we propose to establish um, this institute and have committed 100 million Australian dollars annually to accelerate the development of CCS demonstration projects and to improve the knowledge of commercial viability and the safety of CCS technologies as a way of helping facilitate investment. We've also made substantial bilateral and multilateral commitments to promote re the recognition of mitigation potential from forests through reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. Uh, and it is important for us to remember that are approximately, uh, depending on, the, on, on which measure you use, 20% uh, of global emissions are generated from deforestation and forest degradation. So clearly a response on forest is going to have to be part of any robust international agreement. Australia was one of the first funds, country to commit funds to these activities uh, to support developing capacity 
uh, in our region through establishing a $200 million international forest carbon initiative. And we've been working particularly with nations in our region, such as Indonesia, uh, as well as supporting uh, World Bank activities in relation to forestry. I do want to make it clear to you that this government, the Australian government, is firmly committed to acting to combat climate change, and we are firmly committed to playing our full and fair part in the global effort. We're committed to achieving emissions reductions of 60 per cent by 2050. This, given Australia's domestic circumstances, will be ambitious and challenging to achieve. And we believe the best way to achieve such an ambitious goal is through developing a market-based mechanism, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, which will drive economic transformation and leave us better equipped in the future to deal with the economic challenges as well as the opportunities that climate change will bring. And we believe that taking action to respond to climate change is the economically responsible thing to do. But I do want to say to you this, there is clearly a moral and a personal dimension to this discussion. Because ultimately, governments and individuals, this generation, are not acting on climate change only for ourselves. We act because we do have a responsibility to future generations. We have a responsibility to tackle climate change while we are still able. And we have a responsibility to ensure that those who come after us are well equipped to deal with its effects. As you know, the pace of climate change is accelerating, and so are its effects. And it is now more urgent than ever that we take comprehensive global action. Many thanks. Thank you, Minister, for what I thought was a very interesting, clear, and um, frank talk, and may I uh, just say, uh, Minister, uh, I was deeply impressed uh, by your uh, government's willingness to fight and actually win an election campaign with a firm commitment uh, on climate change, and I think that your, the first act of your government was to ratify Kyoto Protocol, I think, speaks um, to it. Uh, I think I mentioned this uh, yesterday. Uh, this could turn out to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, challenge facing uh, this generation to do something about climate change. Uh, let me also say that as an environmental economist, I'm, I'm, I applaud you for using market-based instruments because we have no financial resources just to throw out uh, of the window. And I found it interesting as well that you um, sort of emphasized the opportunities that are there in doing something about climate change, uh, a point which resonates what Tom Friedman yesterday in his talk um, was dwelling on upon as well. He said it's one of the, uh, uh, the biggest opportunities for, well, for the United States, but also for Australia. Now we have about uh, a little bit more than 20 minutes for question and answer session. Uh, I will take a few uh, in, in, in uh, combination, and then uh, Minister Wong will answer. Um, some of you like to make long statements. Uh, these I will cut short. Uh, you are allowed to make statements, but I prefer questions, and it has to be short. So if you would raise your hands, please. And then please also say uh, your, your name. We'll have the lady here first. Please wait for the uh, uh, microphone. Please state your, your name before asking your question. Hello. Yes, I think it's um, hello, Olga Roberts, uh, master's degree here at LSE. Um, 
What plans does Australia have in place for tackling the enormous potential of concentrated solar power technology? Okay. Uh, we'll have, there was someone in the back. Yes, please. Uh, um, Hi, uh, Chris Smith, EcoTube, The Green YouTube. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about coal. Um, Will you include the coal that you sell to other countries for them to burn in your emissions, um, you know, totals? And secondly, you said you were putting 100 million into carbon capture as a kind of development technology. My understanding is it costs around a billion per power station to actually build this if it actually works. What incentive is there for companies to develop this technology? Um, and why is the government not actually putting enough money in to actually build an entire project from start? Okay, we'll take one more question. Someone there, yeah? We'll take you. Wait, wait, please, for the microphone. What's the Australian government's position on the use of uh, offsetting and uh, credits from the clean development mechanism in their market-based scheme? Okay, we're taking them from the top. First, the question about solar power. Uh, obviously, in the context of this speech, uh, I didn't canvass every, everything we're doing. Uh, and uh, an aspect which I didn't speak about was uh, the renewable energy uh, policies that we see as a very important adjunct to the introduction of a carbon price. So your question was, you know, what are we doing about solar? And, uh, which is obviously one of the areas where Australian scientists have done a lot of work. In terms of policies, what I'd, I'd say there are essentially three levels. The first is the carbon price, but as you would know, that is insufficient to deal with the um, uh, competitiveness, cost competitiveness issues uh, at this point. So the second, the, the, the other two policy mechanisms we're using is uh, a mandatory renewable energy target with a similar sort of um, uh, objective is I think you have in the UK which is 20% by 2020 of energy sources to be based from renewable energy, source from renewable energy. Can I say, just interpolate there, that is quite a significant challenge for Australia. Uh, and I'll come to the coal question shortly. We have around about 80% of our base load that comes from coal. So uh, in terms of, uh, notwithstanding Eric having a go at the previous government, uh, but in terms, of <laughs> in terms of shifting to a lower carbon economy, if you have 80% of your base load on coal, that is, uh, that is a very substantial set of policy challenges just on that issue alone. Uh, so 20% renewable energy target by 2020, and the, the third is a range of grant programs for renewable energy um, to recognise that essentially you have to uh, bring, uh, put public uh, financing into that research effort. Um, the renewable energy target, uh, uh, working with uh, the emissions trading scheme, the carbon pollution reduction scheme, uh, ha has the the intention of it is to seek to bring forward investment in renewables earlier than would otherwise be the case, and that comes from the very clear recognition of the sorts of lead times which are required in terms of investment in this sector. Uh, the question on coal: Can I say the 100 million per year uh, which we're proposing? Uh, is not the, the notion of this institute is not that it itself would build. This is about seeking to collaboratively with, collaboratively with the rest of the world who have an interest in this area of, of carbon capture and storage uh, to uh, better enable uh, the knowledge and, uh, and experience 
uh, and research uh, and practical demonstrations which are occurring in the EU, uh, in, in, uh, in other parts of the world, to bring that together to, to find a way to establish, I suppose, best practice knowledge, both in terms of R&D and also regulatory systems and other practical measures uh, to be located in this institute. Uh, we, we, we have already got a reasonable engagement with China uh, in terms of a number of collaborative processes. Uh, and, and I don't know if this was behind your question, but it, I'll, I'll address it anyway. Uh, we have a very clear view as the government that uh, we have to find a low emissions technology on coal. Uh, partly that is driven from uh, our own baseload power uh, understanding, but partly it's driven from uh, the understanding uh, that for the foreseeable future, coal will remain a significant energy source for much of the world. So if you genuinely want a solution on climate change, my view is you're inexorably led to the view that we have to find, humanity has to find a low emissions solution on coal. And it's not a, uh, an either or. Uh, we do this at the same time as putting in place a substantial amount of resources into renewable energy, but we recognise we also have to put uh, air, um, resources into developing a low emissions technology for coal. So I don't know if that's behind your question of will we um, um, include the emissions from coal um, that we sell to you and other people uh, and to um, China. Uh, obviously, I don't know how flippant the question was, but it's a domestic scheme. But I think behind your question is a recognition that this is an issue the world has to deal with. And frankly, I think there are something like 75 countries which export coal. Uh, so I think we have to find a solution. In terms of offsetting the CDM, uh, we have said that um, uh, we would, uh, well, two points about international linking. Uh, the first is we're very conscious we're creating a market, so our first priority is to ensure that that market is robust and it operates well. Uh, we are uh, uh, open uh, to two things. One is in the longer term uh, open linking. Uh, I think. Uh, that uh, in the long term what you do want to have is to design a scheme that will enable linking with uh, emissions trading schemes in other parts of the world. In terms of CDMs, uh, we do see uh, that the green paper, the proposal is that we would allow uh, CDMs uh, and international, those international mechanisms to count towards domestic abatement opportunities. And can I say on that, it's interesting, um, uh, I understand that's a, a fairly significant political debate here at the moment, which I don't propose to get into. Um, but I suppose in Australia, um, one of the things that uh, we have made a priority, and, and I spoke a little bit about the International Forest Carbon Initiative. Uh, we, we live in a region where there are very significant deforestation activities still being undertaken. So within, uh, within Australia, I think uh, there is a, a great recognition of the responsibility as a, as a regional as a significant regional economy in, in our region. Uh, and given our historic responsibilities, uh, the importance of us working with those nations to try and reduce emissions from deforestation, for example, and, and um, forest degradation. Uh, I don't want to get into your internal domestic, your domestic policy debate. Uh, I do think it's important uh, that uh, we recognise this is a global problem, so we need, we need a global response, and linking is part of that. The argument about trying to ensure that you shift your domestic economy, uh, we believe, given how broad our schemes proposed to be, 70% uh, of emissions uh, and 70% at this age of auctioning, 
which is very significant, that that economy-wide carbon price will, will drive abatement activity uh, in, and an economic transition with the, within the Australian domestic economy, notwithstanding the availability of CDMs. Okay, thank you. We'll take uh, three more questions. Yes, the uh, gentleman here. Um, can we have a micro? Gentlemen in the in the white suit, do you have a do you have a micro? Just a second, second please. Thank you very much, Minister. You um, uh, in an excellent speech. You didn't touch too much on water. Could I ask about um, two subjects? One of which is that, and the other is um, Australia as a um, Commonwealth. Um, in New South Wales. The desalination plant uh, at Canel. Um, could, this is could not a question I anticipated. The LEC, I have to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, my parents emigrated 20, oh, okay. 25 years ago. Um, I, I'd just just be interested to know about the way in which, um, in putting forward your policies, um, you can deal with those um, as uh, the federal government, um, and in particular the way in which you're looking at water as one of the major issues in the environment political agenda. Thank you. Okay. We'll take one question. Yes. Yes, please. You. From above. Hello. Annette Quayle from the University of Warwick. Um, I'm wondering what will it take to get China and India into a, a global action agreement and what role do you see Australia playing in doing that. Okay, we'll take one more question from behind here. The gentleman in the back with the suit, please. Hi. Um, yeah, my question is about uh, the uh, compensation formula that is being used for uh, trade exposed emissions intensive uh, industries. I think recently um, your in government... In Australia or in the EU? Um, in Australia. I think recently there was um, a discussion paper released uh, talking about moving the compensation formula from a revenue-based metric to um, a value-added metric. And I think um, about two days ago, there was discu this discussion paper was presented to yeah. a public forum. Uh, what I want to know was, um, what was the outcome of this uh, forum? Um, is there a list of chance of a uh, value-added being used? And if value-added is being used, um, what's the, um, the formula or the measurements that you're thinking of using? You have very well-informed students yeah, very here. <laughs> <laughs> that was only a couple of weeks ago, we Okay, water. Well, the other portfolio I have is water. Uh, and the reason, I didn't speak much about it, but, um, the reason we did that uh, is, uh, to be frank, that uh, most Australians' understanding of climate change uh, has, or many Australians have understood climate change most directly and most personally through their experience of water or the lack of it. I come from Adelaide in South Australia, and that's um, our largest river system, which you'd be aware of, is the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, and that uh, basin uh, has been the subject of um, some very detailed scientific modelling around climate change impacts, which essentially builds on the IPCC report and brings it down to a, a finer grain in terms of catchments. Uh, and uh, in the majority of the catchments of, of the Murray-Darling Basin, the southern part of the Murray-Darling Basin, we are tracking in terms of rainfall and inflow uh, at either equivalent or worse than the worst case climate change scenarios for 2030. So for us, um, uh, 
climate change is a very present issue. Uh, and we have a substantial policy agenda on water, which I could talk for a long time about, but I won't. But essentially we have uh, a plan we've called Water for the Future, $12.9 billion, and it is the best way, I think, of conceptualising it is that this is climate change adaptation in practice. This is money that is being invested in both urban, in both urban Australia and rural regional Australia uh, to reflect the recognition that we have to prepare for a future where we are likely to have less rainfall. Uh, and that manifests in a range of policy ways. They, they include uh, uh, alternative sources of water that are not so dependent on rainfall, recycling, desalination, stormwater, um, all of the, those range of water um, availability measures, water efficiency measures, uh, and frankly, uh, an, an, in an economic transition in our agricultural sector that enables us to do uh, more with much less. So we have to essentially transition very significant parts of our uh, irrigation communities uh, onto a, a more efficient footing given the likely likelihood of, of water availability in the future. Um, second, the question on what will it take to get China or India um, to agree. Um, Add, add to that the US. Uh, there is, I wasn't, I was being, I'm being serious. Uh, we, we will not have an agreement that is effective unless we get the major economies ma and ma major emitting nations to be part of it. And that was part of the point I was making in the speech about having to be very aware of the political and economic circumstances of the nations with whom, who, who, with whom we're negotiating. Uh, I don't think anyone has the. Um, sort of easy answer on that. There isn't an easy answer. Uh, I would say um, in terms of China, uh, we have made it a priority as a government to engage very closely with China. There's obviously a very strong trade relationship. Uh, there's also, at a personal level, the Prime Minister was a diplomat in China and speaks fluent Mandarin, which is always embarrassing for the rest of us, um, <laughs> particularly if your name is Wong. <laughs> um, um, <coughs> and, you know, we have it has been a, a, a substantial aspect of, of um, what he and the government have been doing uh, into foreign policy terms since uh, election. Uh, so we will continue to engage very closely with China. Uh, I think there is, um, from my perspective, China's understanding and recognition, understanding of recogni and recognition of climate change issues is certainly deepening. Uh, I think on the issue of uh, how developing nations will be included into an, in an international agreement. That is still very much something that needs to be worked through, uh, and I don't believe anybody as yet has the answer on that. Uh, but uh, I think uh, many people understand uh, how critical it is. Uh, what was the last thing? The very detailed question on the metric for emissions intensive trade exposed. Um, for perhaps not everyone in the room has quite the detailed knowledge, so I'll just quickly um, outline what we're doing. Uh, you're having a bit of this debate currently, I think, in terms of how do you deal with the possibility and the risk of carbon leakage. Uh, and what we are proposing to do in Australia is to say of the permits that will be uh, issued, we would auction 70% and we would provide 30% free. And the targeting of the 30% is primarily, predominantly, um, is to the emissions intensive trade exposed sector. So then if you determine that approximately 30% should go to the emissions intensive trade exposed sector, the, the next policy question is 
who's in and who's out, uh, and how, uh, what are the rules that you set to uh, determine that. Uh, and we have sought to do that in a way that is both transparent, but also that is very clear about what the policy objective is, because the policy objective here uh, is to uh, minimise risk of carbon leakage, to recognise that these industries trade on world markets where they cannot pass on the price, uh, and therefore in the absence of a global carbon constraint that has some comparable carbon price, we have to provide this assistance, which we hope is transitional until there is a global agreement. The metric proposed in the Green Paper was tonnes per million dollars of revenue. Uh, and there were a range of reasons which I could go through as to why we propose that. One of the reasons, to be frank with you, is it is very transparent and easily comparable. Uh, there are a number of industry groups who have proposed a value-added metric. So you would look at a emissions intensity against value-add uh, now. And we did, my department did circulate a, a proposed, you know, a paper which looked at some of the formulations around how you would you would structure that. This isn't a very easy task. Uh, uh, it's not easy politically, frankly, because obviously people's perspective depend on where they are in uh, in, in terms of the, the list of who's most emissions intensive for different metrics. But more importantly, it's actually uh, I think there are some practical uh, issues about how you might construct a value-added for formula. On all of these issues, we are still in the process of policy design uh, because final decisions have not yet been made. We put a preferred set of options out in the Green Paper, which is a very detailed set of proposals around the scheme, including in relation to emissions intensive trade exposed. But we've made very clear that was the basis of essentially a negotiation and a consultation. So we are still in the process of doing that. Okay, we'll take uh, two more uh, questions, uh, please. Yes, first one, and then over there in the corner, second one. Yes, please. Short questions, please. We are running out of time. Hi, my name is Trudy Collis, and I'm a graduate from the LSE. Um, I think that uh, you have underplayed the importance of coal uh, and essentially uh, ignored the elephant in the room. Australia is one of 75 uh, coal exporters around the world, but we are probably the second largest coal exporter in the world. Um, you talk about deforestation and refer to Indonesia, but surely uh, in your policy response you should be prioritising your, um, your actions and coal should be amongst the top yes. of those. Okay, thank you. Got the point. Brief, please. Hello, um, um, my name is Antoine, I'm from Imperial College. I had a brief question concerning peak oil. I wanted to know um, what you thought about it and what can be done more generally. Okay, well, just in terms of prioritising coal, I'm not quite sure, um, I'm not quite sure I understand exactly what you're putting to me. I mean, I thought I made it clear that we regard finding a low emission solution on coal as a key priority. And I think what I was trying to communicate was that um, some of uh, the views that suggest that that shouldn't be priority, that government should put their money into something else, fail to reflect the reality not only of our experience, which is obviously a very substantial reliance on coal, uh, but the globe uh, and the fact that the world uh, will continue to use coal as uh, in the foreseeable future as a fuel source. If, if that is the case, it's very simple. 
uh, I don't believe that we can construct a climate change uh, solution that does not involve a low emission solution on coal. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to do what we're doing, which is to invest in renewables. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, we, it would be great if we could switch to geothermal at some point or um, if we could work out a way to make solar baseload, but the, these technologies are, are still uh, needing substantially greater amounts of development before they're deployable uh, at that scale. So um, we've, we have um, put half a billion dollars uh, into, into coal, research into essentially low emissions solutions for coal, uh, and again we've pledged uh, 100 million, up to 100 million per year to host uh, the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute to try and provide a hub to bring um, expertise in the world together on the issue of coal. Uh, peak oil, I have to say, I have to confess, it's probably not an issue I, I can uh, provide a significant answer for on. Um, I, I proceed on the basis that uh, uh, we need to introduce a carbon price, we need to develop um, a range of alternative energies as well as reducing emissions from existing forms of energy uh, and um, we need to do that as well and we need to do what in terms of Australia we need to invest in a whole range of renewable options because where we want to be is subsequent generations of Australians being able to have a, a wider range of energy options uh, including low emissions energy options than this generation. Uh, is provided with. Okay. Minister, thank you very much again for reserving some time in your very busy schedule, what must be a very busy schedule, to come to LSE and give us this very interesting uh, talk. Please join me in a warm round of applause. <laughs>